Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. We're continuing on with the class of 1999 with one of the most acclaimed films from the uh, end of the year. It was one of the nominees for Best Picture, was nominated for a few other uh, Oscars. It is Frank Darabont's The Green Mile. Join me to discuss the film is a writer and director I've had on the film be- on the podcast before, uh, talking about his own work. And I'm glad to be joined once again by Nicholas Duarte. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to to dive into this <laughs> conversation with you. I love this film. Yeah, and it, it's funny. So this this was a movie that when I, I I saw it in theaters, as many people did, it was one of the bigger hits of the year. And it, it was a movie that at the time was on my 10 best list uh, for the end of the year. Now, at, now, granted, there were a few films uh, that also come out that at the time I had not seen yet. Um the Insider, uh, Magnolia, and and plus, I mean, I was just a different individual. Now, now as I've been going through the films of 1999, I don't know if it would quite make my top ten, but there are a number of films from that year that that were on that original top ten that aren't going to make it because of the fact that just the sheer fact that um, some films have elevated themselves from how I originally felt about them. Uh, this, this was, um, this was a film that I remember being really anticipated mainly because of the fact that it was Frank Darabont's, uh, follow up to the Shawshank Redemption. And it had Tom Hanks and it was once again, Darabont adapting Stephen King. Um, have you, how, I'm not sure how much of a reader you are. Uh, have you read the uh, Stephen King story? Sort of. Uh, so I, I don't know if you remember, but the the original version of the story was uh, was published in kind of a funny way, right? It was yeah. It was it was serialized. It was done chapter by chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember my my mom is a huge, huge Stephen King uh, fan, just read everything he ever put out as soon as he put it out. And so through her, I was, I was young in 99. Um, I mean, I guess I was probably 12. <laughs> That's how math works. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was, so I wasn't, I wasn't quite reading Stephen King yet at the time, but I'd been kind of reading it for my mom and my, uh, my mom, uh, funny enough, read a lot of Stephen King out loud to us. For kids, right. uh, so sort of read it. Uh, definitely was familiar with it though before it uh, before it came out. Okay, um, when did you first see the movie? Uh, I'm gonna say I did not see it in theaters, and it's, it's funny I, it, that uh, you know you're doing this um, kind of retrospective of that year because you know immediately I was like, oh, what's, what's going on in '99? I just looked it up right now and. Uh, my God, what an incredible yeah. year for cinema. It's insane. Yeah. You know, my first thought was hearing you in the intro was like, how, how could this not make your top 10 of the year? And then I started looking at everything else and <laughs> what happened in 99? Uh, it's 
so good. Uh, which is kind of funny when you see that, you know, American Beauty of all the films was what, what took Best Picture. Because uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if that would really stand out anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I, I saw it on home video. Uh, I'm going to guess a couple years after. I remember being in high school when I first saw it. Um, I know my... Uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, and her sister loved the film. Uh, my girlfriend ended up becoming my wife. Uh, and so that was kind of my introduction to it. We're all in the same group of friends and, you know, they're sophomores, uh, juniors in high school, and they're obsessed with this three hour long movie. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I, I love about the movie and I, when I rewatched it earlier this year, it was It'd been a good long while since I'd seen it. Um, <clears throat> this for for a movie that is in fact three hours, it doesn't feel like it. It moves really briskly for a three hour movie that is largely set in a prison. Yeah, and and that really struck me this time watching it. You know, it's probably about a. <laughs> 10 years since I last really sat down and watched it, mm-hmm. you know, outside of catching bits and pieces of it here and there. Uh, so, you know, prepping for this conversation, I went back and rewatched it and uh, the pacing is, is really stunning in it. You know, it, it takes its time, but every scene feels there. You feel weight in every single scene of the film. Yeah. Uh, and there is a engine in every single scene. You know, I the the one that really caught my attention is when he visits the uh, uh, coffee's lawyer, uh, played by Gary Sinise. Mm. And you think of that scene, and you really could just take that scene out, cut it out, and it would not have any impact really on much of anything. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that it still takes its time, and you know, you can see the um, uh, sort of the mirror of Gary Sinise's life to, you know, what had happened to uh, the two little girls and, and John Coffey's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see the reflection there, uh, but in terms of plot, you know, it's not really there. And this is a film that isn't really overly concerned with plot. Uh, rather it's more concerned of, to me at least, you know, the machinations of uh, the characters throughout it, yeah. uh, less of moving the story for. So yeah, letting it take its time, but like you said, it's it does it in a in sort of a brisk way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's never a point where I just felt bored or felt like, okay, let's hurry up, let's get this part over with. Yeah, um, you know, it almost feels like it, it feels like you're watching a novel, mm-hmm. uh, which maybe is a you know great characterization of Frank Darabont's work. Uh, you know, Shawshank has a very very similar feeling to it as well. Yeah, uh, where Shaw- Shawshank feels more novelistic than it does feel like uh, a piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. No, and that's that's one of the thing, and it's funny because I actually uh, I actually just rewatched Shawshank for my movie week series uh, this week, and so it was it was actually really great timing that that movie came up uh, right around the time that we're recording this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I and I think that's part of the reason why, for a while, at least after Shawshank, and then with the Green Mile, a lot of people were really, you know, like Darabont was probably the only filmmaker that people wanted to see adapt Stephen King at the time. Mm-hmm. And because of the fact that it is very, he he does take a very 
storytelling, story-driven, character-driven um, way of approaching the narrative. And you're right. And I I think sort of by the nature of the way the the book was released, the six six book structure of uh, the way King released the Green Mile. This this is very episodic, but like, but you're absolutely right. Like each 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 moment, each scene, it it doesn't really feel. If you take them individually, yeah, there's not really much to them individually. But you take them as part of a larger whole, it it falls together really lovely. Yeah, I. Uh... I definitely agree with that. It's a, it's a, it, it's kind of a, a funny, uh, I don't even want I don't think the, you know, the sum is better than the, the parts, you know, type of thing, but, mm-hmm. uh, you're absolutely right though. I mean, you could, you could pull a lot of these scenes out individually and it wouldn't hurt it too much, but it is that, that kind of collective, weight yeah. of it all that really gives it its tone and its feeling and its emotionality. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that, the thing that's really, it, and rewatching Shawshank, it had been a while since I'd watched uh, Shawshank as well. Um, it's funny because of the fact that both of these films are there to a certain extent, the stories are basically discussing the nature of, you know, sort of the morality of prison, and in the case of the Green Mile, it's 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 in a way the morality of the death penalty. And this this is a very and like if you're wanting to look at the death penalty more, um, in a more criticize criticize and biting way. I mean, I think Dead Man Walking, the Tim Robbins film, is a better way of looking at. But from a simply emotional standpoint, I think the the Green Mile does something just as vital in the way it brings us into the uh, different lives that we see on death row from these uh, inmates. Yeah, and I even to, you know, I think we could almost expand beyond that. Um, Something I found myself thinking while watching is that it is a, it's a great... um, not just conversation starter, but also uh, a filter for a lot of different topics. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, uh, you know, you have the, the death penalty and you have the prison system and you can look at it from, you know, something that took place nearly a hundred years ago and look at how does that relate to today? What's changed? What hasn't changed? Uh, you can look at things like, and may, maybe we'll get into that conversation, maybe not, but things like the magical Negro, and mm. what's problematic or what's not problematic there. Yeah. Um, you know, you can look at the, the socioeconomic time of, you know, 30, 40%, depending on the figures of the, you know, the population being out of work. Um, you look at religious themes, uh, you know, filter that through, you look at class themes and all of that. So I do think there's a, a, a lot happening in what is essentially a fable, Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does, it does a nice job of, uh, you know, at least making you think about, about some of these things in a, uh, you know, it's not in a documentary format by any means, but yeah. in a way that, 
that works with how our brains work, which is, you know, very much guided by myth and narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the death penalty particularly, you know, it's right there. I, I thought about it a lot when it came to the character of Dell, yes. uh, you know, cause you, the whole time you meet Dell, he's this, you know, fun, sweet, simple character. Right. And gosh, you start thinking like how terrible Percy is to him and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that stuff. And then, you know, there's just one shot, um, and it's a line of dialogue. I'm, you know, this isn't verbatim, just kind of remembering, but, uh, you know, it's a, a close up on a woman. I think she says something like, you know, I hope he rocks in hell or I hope it hurts or something along those lines. And you remember that, Oh wait, Dell is there for a reason. Yeah. And we don't really ever know what he did, but, or if he even did it, especially thinking, uh, you know, what, what crime technology would have been like back then. Uh, but it does kind of force you to reckon with, um, prisoners are people, uh, people in this situation, mm-hmm. um, you know, are still human beings. And then, you know, who, I guess it's, it's, the question is who has the more truth of what's deserving of this person? Is it the, uh, let's assume Dell did do it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you know, who we empathize with them because that's, you know, the person we get to know as opposed to, uh, you know, the victim or the victim's family. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still that piece there too. And there's a little bit of like, ah, you kind of have to reconcile with the fact that this character you've grown to love, uh, you know, may have done a terrible, terrible, awful thing, may have been a you know terrible human being. Uh, you know, it, it, and that's another way, you know, we can kind of look at, uh, what's going on in our own prison population as well. Yeah. Um, it's just not cut and dry, really. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things that I absolutely do love about this movie is that the, the, the thing about, the thing that really shines through when it comes to this movie thematically is, is that it's not only about the importance of the value of life but it's also about the weight of taking a life. And mm. it's it's important that we see the executions that take place in this movie. And I believe there are three, if I recall. Yeah. Um, yep. And one of them is Dell's. And Dell played by the late, great, wonderful Michael Jeter. And his his, his performance in this movie is one of my absolute favorites from the movie. He he is really good and yeah Percy played by Sam Rockwell, uh, who I think this might be the first time in his career he's played a racist. Um, <laughs> feel, feels like he's he it feels like he's almost typecast as that to a certain extent now, but uh, which is a shame because he's so fantastic. But um, he he's really great in this and uh, or wait a minute no he's not Percy. That's, sorry, uh, yeah, that's, Sam Rockwell's uh, yeah, Wild Bill. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He that's right. Wild Bill is one of the other inmates. Um, Don't worry though; he's a racist too, so it's fine. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Percy is uh, Doug Hutchinson. He he's the he's the uh, he he's the um, guard that he he basically he he basically screws he basically intentionally uh, sabotages Dell's execution and. The that is just one of the more painful moments to watch in the film. Really, is to see how that goes awry and just 
and to see and that's one of the things that's so I think that is an important moment to see is just this even even if Dell did what he did and is has done this heinous thing he if 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 we're going to execute him there should be you know should there be a certain amount of decorum and respect to that given to that because it is taking a life and he he definitely does not we because of we how we've gotten to know him with uh Mr. Jingles the mouse um we we don't necessarily feel like he he ended up even if legally speaking he got what he deserved morally speaking we don't necessarily feel we got he got what he deserved because of the way his end happens yeah and i that that sequence of of you know percy uh stepping on mr jangles and then you know when dell's in the the chair and percy's saying there is no mouse bill uh which is the you know the place that um the guards tell dell that you know his mouse mr jangles is going to go live and have this great life in mouseville and and then uh percy not you know uh, putting on the dry sponge um that whole sequence uh you know, for pretty much the the whole movie leading up to that, there was a knot in my stomach waiting for that. You know, that was one of the things mm-hmm. that I really viscerally remember. Yeah. Because uh, it's just so uh, grotesque, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody could do this to another human being. And this time I was watching it and and trying to reconcile with, like, oh, man, maybe, maybe Dell does this. You know, maybe this couple minutes of absolute torture, both emotionally and physically – you know, but then it's a situation of looking at, you know, that's not that's not Percy's decision to make. You know, that's not the the way that society is set up at that time. You know, yeah. he's that's not his call. He didn't see the evidence. He didn't, you know, the, none of that is there. We've, we've all agreed as a collective society that we're moving past things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then it it does become more of a reflection on Percy and who he is a person and and what motivates him. And I think. Uh, gosh, that performance is, is so great. You know, he's just so good at that smarmy, sniveling villain type character. Uh, you know, that, that, that archetype, um, which when done right is just, is, is such a bad guy that you love to root against. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, um, Joaquin Phoenix's character in a uh, gladiator type of character, you know, yeah. um, you're just like, Oh, I can't wait for this guy to get what's coming to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you had brought up, I think you mentioned it earlier. The, uh, I, I'd forgotten that this had the framing device in it. Mm-hmm. I, I had completely forgotten about that. And it's like, I couldn't help but think, and I, I've never, I haven't read the green mile, but it's like, I can't help but think that that was, probably something that came about as much because of uh saving private ryan essentially did the same thing um because that have framing device too where it's like takes you into the past and then out of the past into the present and stuff like that now with green mile it makes a little bit more it it's not quite as gratuitous because of the fact that there's a there's a point to it in the in regards to the 
regards to uh, Paul Tom Hanks's character, mm-hmm. uh, because of the what we find out is that um, John Coffey, Michael Clark Dunk's, Duncan's character, by healing him, he is also in a way sort of cursed him with um, he he's given him some of uh, his gift, which kind of includes a in a way is almost a curse of having to watch uh, the people we love pass away. Yeah, I um, I'm still kind of struggling with how I feel about that framing device. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I I like it. I like it in terms of the story idea of it. You know, I think probably on the page it makes a great deal of sense because you can you know, kind of come in and out of that. And yeah, I mean, it's nice, you know, they bookend it. So it's not constant, but uh, you know, it does feel like something, maybe it's, it's better suited for pros. And maybe that's because I, you know, the, the, uh, the old Paul looks nothing like the young Paul. No. And there (laughs) is a, and and it's a silly thing, but it's also kind of a really important thing in film being so visual. And, you know, the reason why, to me, at least, acting uh, performances are the most important thing in a film uh, is because humans connect with humans. And, you know, by the time we get back to old Paul, uh, I don't really have much, I don't say empathy, but I don't really feel connected to this character. You know, yeah. that's it's like, OK, movie, you're telling me that's Paul, but don't try to trick me. Yeah. You know, Paul is Tom Hanks. Right. I know who Paul is. <laughs> um, and so it kind of felt more of like a hey we just want to let you know that he lives for a very long time <laughs> um <laughs> you know and i and I, I i don't know if it's really all that necessary on the front end or on the back end um right. to to have that sequence or not i don't know did you feel a similar way about it or yeah or did you I, like I, the definitely, framing of it? I definitely kind of feel that way as well um i you know it's like i i kind of understand like because this is a this is this feels like a very old fashioned movie. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of old um, mm-hmm. Simac archetypes at work here, and so from a narrative standpoint, it's like I kind of understand why they did, but but it's funny because of the fact that rewatching Shawshank, like that takes place over a span of twenty years, uh, mm-hmm. and it's funny because of the fact that like. You know, you're talking about not really having a an emotional connection with the older Paul because of the fact that you recognize Paul by the end of the movie as being Tom Hanks' character. It one of the things that I really liked about Shawshank is that there's a minimal there seems to be a minimal amount of makeup work done on Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman in that movie. But mm-hmm. because of the way the performances work, you still feel like you're watch. You still feel like these characters are aging, even even what and you you see especially William Sadler's character. He definitively ages through makeup and stuff like that. And but at the same time, it's not as it's much more subtle with the way that they visualize Andy and Red. Um, aging, and so, yeah, I completely understand why you're sort of by the end when you return to Paul, you know, the old man in the home. You, 
it's hard for you to sort of reconcile the fact that that's the same character that Tom Hanks just played for two and a half hours. Right. Yeah. It's a, you, you really have to almost think of it as like, okay, it's a prologue and an epilogue, yeah. but it doesn't, it almost doesn't even feel like that. It almost feels like a prequel sequel type of thing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not prequel cause chronology, but, uh, it, it does feel like it's from something else yeah. and it's like, Oh, Hey, let's check in with, with that character of Paul. If you know, it, I, I would imagine if it was, um, you know, made today and say in a big studio system, it'd be the type of thing that you would, you know, go online to get more information about. And you have one of these special kind of, uh, digital only shorts, you yeah. know, to accompany it in case you wanted to get more, into mythology of what happened with Paul. And, and I guess that's, that's really what it's served for me for, right. for what was such a, an emotional film. This mm-hmm. felt more of like, especially the ending felt more like it was diving into mythology. Yeah. And it just wasn't something I was all that interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had no emotional connection. It, was, it would be the type of thing where I would rather just be like, I could just read this on Wikipedia of what happens to this character. Well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and especially considering the fact that the emotional climax of the movie is the is the kill the death of John Coffey, mm-hmm. um, Michael Clark Duncan's character. And if if you're listening to this and haven't watched the movie, basically, oh yeah, the, spoiler alert. <laughs> basically, the this premise of this movie is um, Tom Hanks works death row, uh, known as the Green Mile, in and in a Southern prison in, I think the 1930s, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's in uh, Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, he, and John Coffey is a hulking uh, black man who's been accused of murdering two little girls. He was found with their bodies and, but he has proclaimed their innocence or his innocence. And he has been given the death penalty for this. If you you can basically take all of the pieces of you know setting time and uh, draw your own conclusions as to you know why that was necessarily the case, and um, it's basically about the life of it's basically about the spending time with Paul the. Uh, the main guard on the Green Mile, played by Tom Hanks, as well as David Morse, Harry Dean Stanton, are guards at death row as well, as well as some of the other prisoners like Dell, like Wild Bill. And it's basically following them and their experiences with John Coffey, who has supernatural abilities as we come to as we come to uh, recognize. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I, I think with uh, one of the things I really enjoyed with it was the approach of magical realism, uh, you know, to it was you, you get the sense there's an inner working to the supernatural Mm -hmm. abilities, but it's never really discussed. And it's, you know, it's because John uh, coffee himself doesn't really know, you know, where these things came from, what they do or, you know, you get the impression he has some degree of control over them. He knows how to use them somewhat. Right. Um, but, you know, for, you know, they, they keep kind of going back to the idea of, you know, it's a miracle of God type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so you know and that's the type of thing knowing what uh the inner workings of something like it or you know other stephen king stories but you know particularly with it was the one that popped in my head was i was like wondering how this connects with the overall stephen king multiverse (laughs) (laughs) extended universe of is there a cosmic uh space turtle that is giving him these powers and it's kind of like i I don't necessarily want to know that (laughs) yeah uh so yeah but i I thought they did a great job of it being more of you know how how would you necessarily react to this and what would this um you know what would this mean for you as a person uh Mm -hmm. you know seeing these things and tom hanks's you know struggle especially at the end uh, when he's, you know, talking to, to his wife, um, played by Bonnie Hunt, who I absolutely adore in this. Yeah, uh, she's wonderful in this. Yeah, and I didn't realize how much I love her in it. Um, and she's not in a lot of scenes, but uh, you just, you feel that relationship between the two of them so much. Um, but, you know, when, he, when he's trying to, uh, you know, figure out what he's going to do about John Coffey's execution, and, you know, he's talking about his day of judgment, Um which, you know, depending on different belief systems may be, you know, something he's just wrestling with right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, that day of judgment is constantly occurring, uh, you know, and, and, and seeing, yeah, what would you do in that type of a scenario? Mm-hmm. Um, what is your moral responsibility? Even after John Coffey tells him it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, and, and the magical realism, it's like, and this is, I, I just want to bring when when we're when we're talking about that it's like I I will it's sort of apropos of nothing of in terms of thematic work but from a technical standpoint it's like that type of story and the type of the type of world that Darabont creates in this film is this is where a composer like Thomas Newman who had mm-hmm. scored Shawshank and sh- scored American Beauty in 1999, he, his, his musical ideas really add so much to the experience of a movie like this. And it's because of the fact that there's, there's whimsy, but there's also sadness in the way he orchestrates, the way he uses motifs, and... It's it's something you hear in Shawshank. It's something you hear in pretty much every score he's ever done. Yeah, I, I think he is. He's so great at bringing out the tone of a film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone would ever accuse him of being subtle, but no. <laughs> uh, but it's okay. You know, I mean, the the film itself isn't terribly subtle, and that that's why I think of it more in terms of a fable or you know, mm-hmm. it almost. Uh, a couple shades darker, I think it'd fall more into the the Southern Gothic uh, genre than yeah. the, the magical realism, which, you know, again, it's all categories. So, mm-hmm. you know, things we make up, but uh, I, I think it fits perfectly. I mean, even the, the acting style is a, is a little bit heightened. The, um, you know, you talked about it, it does have a very kind of classic feel to it uh, where if, you know, if say we're having this conversation 30 years in the future and I were to tell you, you know, this film was made in the 80s or the 70s. You may not be like terribly surprised by, you know, yeah. if I lied to you about it. You know, it just it, it feels like it could it has this kind of 30 year time period that you feel like, oh, this movie could have been made at any period in this time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing really modernistic about it, uh, which yeah. I love, and, you know, which I think helps it to stand up uh, for the most part today. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and 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 I I think one of the things that and I think a part a big part of that comes down to Darabont as a storyteller. And like his three big Stephen King adaptations, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, and The Mist, they all are they're all kind of timeless in the way mm-hmm. that they approach King's writing. And the fact of the matter is, it's like, yeah, you're 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 right. It's like if you told me that this took place if this was made in even I would even go back as far as the sixties. Yeah. If like you could tell me this was made in the sixties, and with the exception of the cognitive awareness I am of when these actors were live. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise I would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Feels like it could have been made at that time because of the fact that so many of the archetypes have been in place for a while because of the 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 nature of the performances, the nature of the writing, the fact that it's it's very deliberately paced and it's very um confident in what it does from a storytelling standpoint and how it tells the story. And you know, that yeah. Sorry, I was just going to think, you know, something that kind of struck me right now is there, because it is a story about a story. Yeah. And that just really dawned on me that, uh, you know, maybe I have to take back all I said about that terrible framing device. Um, but <laughs> it, it it really is, you know, he's, he's telling the story to his friend. Um, you know, we don't hear him narrate, but we can assume he is the narrator yeah. of this story. Yeah. Uh, and then even, you know, the, uh, of what was the film top hat, uh, that they, you know, see and, you know, John coffee wants to go see a flicker show before he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are the, a lot of these nods of letting us know that, Hey, this is a, uh, a world unto its own, uh, because mm-hmm. of the fact that it is a person telling a story to someone else. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you on that. I just <laughs> no, got excited. I, no, I mean, I was I was basically done with what I wanted to say there. Um, I I really it, it's such a shame that Darabont hasn't directed more. And I mean, in since the Mist, and I mean, I know he originally developed the Walking Dead. There was all sorts of drama with the way that ended, and his tenure with that ended. But, like, it's a shame. It's really a shame. And, I mean, he, he also did another non-Stephen King movie uh, called The Majestic with Jim Carrey after this, which I actually enjoyed at the time. I haven't revisited it in a while. But I I really like Darabont as a storyteller and as a filmmaker. And it's really a shame that we haven't really had him for a decade or so. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. You know, I found myself missing him. And afterwards, I looked at him, I was like, what is Darabont up to? And, you know, uh, apparently after the Walking Dead stuff, he um, developed or worked on the show, I'm fuzzy on details, uh, called Mob City. Uh, I don't know much about it, but, you know, it really does make you you miss him a little bit and wish that, <laughs> oh, can you can you come back and just make another great classic film? Yeah. Because uh, he is, as a, as a storyteller, he is, he has a style, no doubt, but you really get the sense that style purely is to serve the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to necessarily be show off or say, you know, what an interesting or unique director I am. 
Yeah. Uh, but it's more of a, hey, here's a story I really enjoy. Uh, mm-hmm. these are the tools I use to communicate this story. I hope you enjoy it too. Yeah. Uh, is the sense that I get from him. I've, oh, yeah. I, you know, I haven't and, really heard him in things, I mean, but he, yeah, he's, he's a very, he's a very classically minded filmmaker because I mean, really, if you think about the, the King adaptation, Shawshank, Green Mile and the Mist, they're all dealing with archetypes and tropes that have been around for decades. Um, and so he's he's definitely got a particular interest in the type of movies that he wants to do and the types of stories that resonate with him. I mean, part of it might be because of the fact that like that's just not really where Hollywood is right now. But I mean, mm-hmm. I would love to see, you know, I would love to see him, you know, and granted, I would hate to see it for the exposure, that, the lack of exposure we get theatrically, but it's like, I would love to see Netflix get him and go, okay, well, are there any stories that you would be interested in telling? And it's like, yeah, we'll give you money for it. And, <laughs> you know, we'll get you an audience, even though it won't be theatrical. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny where uh, just, I guess, cinema in general is, going yeah. uh, both in terms of of smaller minded film not smaller minded but but smaller scoped films uh you know and and the, the large or uh you know big budget studio films uh you know what that that streaming um platform how it shifted and you could really see like i love the idea of thinking of darebont doing the limited series or yeah you know it really doesn't feel like it'd be that stretch for netflix to be like hey just go pick a novel pick whatever novel you want, come back here and make it. Yeah. Uh, Cause I want to see that, you know, I, I, I would love to see that again. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, it's like he, he would, you know, he would get the absolute best out of his actors and he really does here. Like, I don't think there's a performance in this movie that, and I don't think there's a performance in any of his movies that really stands out as, Oh, that's that's not really good performance. He he gets he gets the best work out of his actors. I mean, even somebody like Hanks, who was on one of the best runs I think an actor's ever been on, as far as performance after performance after performance, just being absolutely spectacular. He he just has such a wonderful delicacy to the the character of Paul and the way he interacts with coffee, the way he interacts with Dell, the way he interacts with his wife played by Bonnie hunt. And even the scenes with the warden played by James Cromwell. And there, now I will say if there's one scene that probably I, I would say, eh, I'm not sure if that necessarily needed to be part of it. It's the, it's the scene where coffee heals the warden's wife played by Patricia Clarkson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just just because of the fact that it's like that that scene, given the way the story ends, it doesn't really seem to add much narratively because we've already seen him. We've already seen John Coffey's gifts by this point because of the fact that he's healed uh, Paul's um, hit Paul's issues, mm-hmm. and we've already seen him. Uh, with Mr. Jangles or Mr. Jingles. And so 
it's it's one of those things where I I'm not sure if that scene belongs, but I mean it's it's a scene with Patricia Clarkson, which is never a terrible thing in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I I would that's probably the one scene where I'm like yeah I'm not sure if that ne- but it also doesn't it it also doesn't take you out of the movie so much to where it's it's a hindrance to the narrative as a whole, as a whole. Yeah, that you know, now you're saying that 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 the scene is interesting because a lot of the film is building up to that scene. You know, there's a lot of hints of that scene's coming. That uh, there's a lot of foreshadowing to that scene. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's and then what comes from that scene of you know him uh, taking the tumor away and then you know putting whatever that kind of evilness into to Percy. Then to you know from there he. Um, Percy kills uh, Wild Bill, so there. It plot-wise, it's an important scene, but you know, that, thinking back on it, it is a scene where it almost feels rushed. Yeah, and you know, and this contradicts what we were talking about earlier, but and and maybe it feels rushed because of the way everything else is paced. But it's kind of like he gets into the room. There's a couple exchanges of dialogue, and then you know he heals her, and you know, you almost want it to be a much larger scene. It, you know, it presents like, it's, is it going to be this kind of exorcist type of moment? <laughs> uh, you know, as he's walking up the stairs and, you know, in the, in the book, uh, I do remember that scene pretty clearly. Uh, you know, there is a, a lot more happening there. Um, and it, it feels like it's a neutered version of yeah. what that scene wanted to be. Um, that, that kind of leads you left out. Something I did want to say though about, Tom Hanks's performance, which I had just uh, come off of, I had rewatched Philadelphia a couple weeks ago, so you know mm-hmm. he's been fresh in my mind. Um, that Tom Hanks, and I think there's a lot of actors, not a lot, uh, but there's a few actors of that echelon. Uh, Denzel Washington, you know, definitely being one of them. Um, I would say maybe somebody like George Clooney a little bit later on, uh, where you're never going to forget that that is Tom Hanks. Yeah. You know, I'm watching it and it's Tom Hanks, you know, I, that's Tom Hanks doing those things, but the performance of it is I, as a viewer, I'm believing that Tom Hanks is feeling the things that this Paul character is feeling. Yeah. You know, Tom Hanks becomes our, uh, you know, our avatar into this world or our guide into this Mm -hmm. world, uh, which I guess is, you know, kind of the importance of having such a strong uh, leading man uh, who's so effortlessly charismatic in a very subdued, but, you know, he's on screen. You want to watch him. He's Tom Hanks. Uh, but I do really feel that that he was going through all of those things. Yeah. And it helps you as a viewer. You know, I almost it it, it made me start thinking a little bit more about the importance of that that leading character and whoever plays that leading character, in any film mm-hmm. uh, is that they do need to be somebody that we can recognize because they are holding our hands uh, through essentially a world of make-believe. Yeah. Uh, so they're that kind of, you know, that kind of bridge uh, between the make-believe world and the real world. Cause we recognize them from, you know, talk shows and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that really hit me uh, this time around, but yeah, I, I adore him in this movie. I also, uh, uh, it's point, you know, you had mentioned uh, some of the other supporting roles in here. Um, Barry Pep, who plays oh, yeah. one of the guards. Yeah. Uh, so good. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. And really small, you know, subtle, understated performance. But uh, 
this time I, I really was just waiting for him to come back on screen. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a type of thing, like when I think of, of uh, Mark Ruffalo uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, what he does in films like, uh, like Foxcatcher, yeah. uh, where it just feels just, oh, this is, this is interesting and you're not really trying. And I felt that way from Barry Pepper. Right. Um, he's just, you know, he's a, just a kind of a classic character actor. He's in a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was wondering if there was, if that performance st- struck you at all, or if there are any other kind of standouts uh, uh, that really hit you I, hard. I would say David Morse is probably mm-hmm. one of the other big standouts. I mean, he, he's somebody who's all of these actors are pretty good in pretty much everything that are in. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it depends on the material because the next year Barry Pepper was in Battlefield Earth, which was a disaster. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, Morse, Michael Jeter's always wonderful. Mm-hmm. And like, it, I'd forgotten that Michael Jeter was in this. And then when Michael Jeter's in this, he's so, he's just so fantastic. So, um, Michael Clark Duncan. I'd forget, uh, I'd for when, now, I remembered by virtue of seeing the movie, but before seeing, re-watching the movie, I'd forgotten Gary Sinise was in, in this as a Coffee's lawyer. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I think that more had to do with the fact, partially had to do with the fact that he and Hanks had been in Force Gump and Apollo 13 together. But, mm. um, yeah, I mean, it, and Cromwell's The Warden is really good. I think the thing is going back to that scene where uh, he uh, cures P- Patricia Clarkson because I'd forgotten because it's been several months since I'd watched Green Mile. By I me, mean, I've got my notes. I'd forgotten about the fact that that was how Percy and Wild Bill how their arcs ended in the movie. I'd forgotten that's how it happened. Um, I I I I thought um, so. To a certain extent, yeah, it does play a role there. But, I mean, I, I think the reason I'm kind of like, eh, I'm not sure if that scene necessarily need to be in there is because of the fact that you would think that that scene naturally would have led to maybe the warden seeing if he could intervene on Coffee's behalf mm-hmm. as far as staying his execution. Yeah, <laughs> and I... That was all. There's a little bit of a, a funny logic thing, you know, where uh, Bonnie Hunt is talking to Tom Hanks there, um, and she's asking, you know, can can the warden help or can Hal help? Yeah. And you know, I, I get the sentiment of the scene, but it does. It, it feels a little bit like some plot, not reverse a plot armor, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does feel a little bit like, no, we have to kill John Coffey for emotional resolution. Yeah. So let's just not even have that scene. Whereas I feel like, you know, if I was that, uh, that character of Hal, um, and especially his wife, you know, you would want to know that, you know, the person that came and, and, and saved your life or saved your wife's life was, uh, you know, was innocent that you don't have to now spend the rest of your life wrestling with, right. were you healed by somebody who may have done this, this awful thing. Um, it, you know, it feels kind of funny that, that, that wasn't really even explored, mm-hmm. uh, especially since with that new information, you can now connect wild bill to those murders a lot easier by just, you know, talking to, uh, you know, the dad of the little girls. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it feels like 
with Tom Hanks's revelation of what really happened, uh, you know, there, there probably should have been a few more months of work of, yeah. <laughs> uh, of trying to help John Coffey out here a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, I think that's that's one of those things where you, you sort of realize that ultimately this you know this this is basically this is following very move some very basic movie conventions of timeline and time frame yeah. and plot near, plot conventions and uh just just storytelling momentum because of the fact that you're you're obvi- you're leading up to this point where coffee is executed and that's the emotional like you said, it's the emotional um, thing that you're building up to, and you know it's going to be emotional. You know it's going to be uh, moving for the audience, and then getting getting there is going to lead you into the third act, which you know feel into the conclusion, which sort of kind of works, but at the same time, you know, like we yeah sort of feels a little tacked on. Well, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, early on the movie lets us know that that logic and the inner workings of the system are important to the story. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of, you know, they they run through the rehearsal of an execution. Yeah. You know, they take the time to explain that to you. Uh, so then now as a viewer, you're thinking like, OK, these things do matter, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that uh, the way that's you know, just the, this world works matters. And then, you know, when you're getting to the climatic, climatic, climactic, there we go, uh, part of it, uh, you know, to kind of, I don't want to say abandon it, but to at least not um, really honor that, uh, is, is, you know, I don't want to say a disservice, but there, that does feel like there's something missing. And, yeah. you know, I, I think uh, the f- most modern example of that to me is, you know, what happened with Game of Thrones, where so much of that world was, you know, built up around logic of how the characters work, how the world works. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, that those final seasons, or at least that final season, depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, it does seem like, eh, we're going to ignore all of that stuff so we can finish <laughs> up the story. Yeah, uh, And I think that's, you know, when you, when you set something up like that, you kind of expect it to carry through. Right. Yeah. And, and that's absolutely true. And I mean, I, it basically... Ultimately, it does boil down to what is the what is the big theme that this movie is getting to, and I I think the biggest theme, the most important theme about this is is the importance of is the is finding a respect for life even when faced with death. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think that's I think that's the big idea that King and Darabont are ultimately trying to get to. So because of that, you, you kind of feel like even, even though you already kind of felt like in the scenes were uh, in the early scenes before the magical, uh, the fantasy element, the supernatural elements of John Coffey's characters come into play. You already kind of got the impression that uh, Paul and David Morris and Tom Hanks, David Morris, Barry Pepper, um, they all had, they all had a respect for life and a respect mm-hmm. for the taking of a life, and so, you know, does does the does the fact that he has to execute John Coffey add to that? And it's like, 
it adds some weight to it, but at the same time, it it's ultimately getting to the. That's where it sort of veers into, you know, more supernatural elements, more religious elements, even where it's like, oh, this, you know, John Coffey was this angel sent by God to, you know, that that's sort of the implication to to help people, and it's like, yeah, I'm not sure if that necessarily falls through because I'm not sure if that necessarily works because of the fact that it's like. You feel like Paul already had a respect for life and mm-hmm. and a respect of the difficulty of taking a life and what that meant, even if the person did what they are, you know, charged with doing. You know, I, I did really appreciate that Paul and his his main group of guards, Percy excluded, uh, 100% agree with you on that, that there is a strong morality there. That yeah. these are people that are good at their jobs, that they value their jobs, uh, and that they, you know, respect the people uh, that they're in charge of, you know, caring for, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I think is a, a really important thing. And it's a, it's a worthwhile thing to even think about, you know, today, uh, you know, what is uh, law enforcement's responsibility to the communities that they serve and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what is our responsibility to uh, the prison population uh as well uh so you know i i I appreciate that um yeah it is it is tough to say though like what you know tom hanks's arc you know he goes through stuff in here but was this a lesson that he really needed to learn you know i'm kind of leaning towards what you're saying is that he kind of already knew this (laughs) um uh and you know maybe you know, somebody else would have a different perspective on it. Maybe, you know, something along the lines of, you know, this challenges that, or, you know, forces him to, to really take a closer look at, at that, you know, more in his bones as opposed to just his occupation. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, could be a little bit of an issue. And I, I, I do want to kind of swing back uh, and talk a little bit about, uh, the character of John Coffey, um, mm-hmm. and more specifically, and, and you know, you know, neither one of us are black, uh, and I think that. Well, I think that's an important thing. Yeah. Is that do we yeah. even really have much of a voice in this conversation? Uh, but it is hard to not not think about it that you have. You know, it's all centered around this one black character, uh, and you know, none of the the creators of this story or the people involved with it. Uh, are African-American. Yeah. Uh, that John Coffey is very much the magical uh, Negro trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't know how troublesome that is or isn't, but I do think that's something that's, that's at least worth taking another look at. And it really struck yeah. me this time of like, oh, there's, there's no other black characters in this. Yeah. And, you know, the racial component of it is, is there, but it's not as heavy as you would maybe expect it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you could kind of piece it together. Uh, you know, they saw this, this giant black man, uh, you know, with two little white girls, uh, you know, you, you, you just have to do a pretty quick history lesson uh, to know yeah. how that's going to turn out. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, are they, are they trading on the, you know, the plight of a certain demographic for entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Um, 
without, you know, giving it the proper respect. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but I'm wondering, if, is that yeah. something that, that hit you at all? Is that something that you thought about with this film? Not necessarily. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it is, is a very complicated question. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right because of the fact that it's like, yeah, all of the, all of the people with the exception of Michael Clark Duncan involved with the making of this story and the creation of this character are white. So, you know, what are their motivations? But the thing is, I, I think, I think the thing that I'm left with more often than not watching this movie is just, there's, there's a real depth of humanity that Michael Clark Duncan Mm -hmm. brings to the role. And I think that is ultimately what we're supposed to be left with. And yeah, it 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 it's 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 problematic. And I complete and it's to a certain extent it is problematic. And I understand exactly where the hesitation comes in play because of the fact that it is a trope, and it is you know it is is something that you know I mean. Will Smith essentially played this type of character yeah. next year in Bagger Van. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, and, you know, it, it's kind of funny. It's like, it, how do, you know, if, you know, it's funny because of the fact that if you think about the history of, you know, the portrayal of black characters in Hollywood and, you know, it's not a particularly great one. And even even if there are great performances in there, and I think to a certain extent you you sort of have to put that in perspective with this. Um, I don't think it's in I don't think it, it's not bad character, it's just there isn't much to the character other than what Michael Clark Duncan really brings to it. And I yeah. think if he if he were not as great in the role as he is, I don't think the character would work as well as it does. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I was reading, there's a point in time when they actually had considered a uh, Shaquille O'Neal for that character. Oh, man. And, you know, <laughs> then I think it would be a very different conversation. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I agree with you. He brings so much pathos to the character, mm-hmm. so much depth to that character, you know, um, I think if you're any sort of a, a feelings or an empathetic person, uh, you know, when he's giving his big monologue at the end, um, when John Coffey is giving it the, at the end and talking about how he feels all yeah. of the world's hurt and how he feels, um, you know, people's hate. And, you know, he's talking about the, uh, wild bill used their love against each other. Uh, you know, what he's doing there, you know, really does feel like it's kind of like reaching in, you know, through the screen, um, yeah. you know, 20 years later and, you know, touching the very depths of your soul mm-hmm. uh, that, it, you know, it kind of transcends uh, a lot of, you know, maybe what we're talking about. And maybe the maybe the bigger issue isn't so much with this particular film. Um, maybe it is, you know, what you're saying, you know, the uh, Hollywood's portrayal. Uh, of, of black folks and black culture yeah. uh, over the years and flatten it down to, you know, tropes and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe if this film 
if the class of 99 films of 1999, uh, you know, if it had more films by, uh, you know, black filmmakers and starring more black actors and actresses, uh, you know, maybe it wouldn't even be that big of a concern, right? Because yeah. then it would just be, oh, well, this is just one people's, you know, uh, Frank Darabont, et cetera, Stephen King. This is, you know, this is just a story. Yeah. And there is no larger responsibility <laughs> than to just tell a good story, a good fable. Yeah. Uh, you don't have any responsibility beyond that uh, because culturally um, people are being informed. Mm. And culturally, there's a lot of stories that are discussing these types of things. Uh, but I think maybe the issue there is that there really aren't a lot of stories, you know, looking mm. at either that time period or, uh, you know, that that demographics journey, uh, specific, you know, in America. Right. Uh, there's not a lot of large popular entertainment that had done that. Uh, mm. And then then it becomes the weight of responsibility shifts almost to, you know, if you're the one movie out of a hundred that is going to touch on the subject, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know what the moral or artistic responsibility is there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so maybe it's less on Stephen King and all of them and more on just, you know, Hollywood culture as a whole. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I was, I was actually just looking to, cause I wanted to, I, I couldn't remember when Michael Clark Duncan passed away. He passed away in 2012. Um, and, I mean, he, he and Michael Jeter passed on by this point. And it's it's a real shame because of the fact that, like, you know, Michael Clark Duncan, I mean, he, he it's hard not to typecast him in particular type of roles. But sure, I mean, physically, the, there's not a lot of people in the world yeah. that... <laughs> That looked like him. But at the same time, I mean, I, I remember like a comedy came out the next year called The Whole Nine Yards. He was in he was absolutely wonderful in that movie. And then he was and it was just a completely different type of performance than you were used to with him. Um but I mean, yeah, it's it's mostly action movies, mostly uh or the bigger ones for him are mostly action movies. Uh, he was Kingpin in the Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck. Um, and yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a shame that, you know, it's a shame that filmmakers, you know, it would have been interesting to see what would happen. It would have been interesting to see uh, what type of character like Ryan Coogler could possibly mm-hmm. directed him in. And, you know, whether it's part of Black Panther or whether it's just just a movie in general, would have been interesting to see what type of uh, character he might have, what, what type of roles he could have gotten and uh, from some of these newer filmmakers uh, who are sort of pushing the conversation more with regards to the type of uh characters and stories that are available for uh, black actors and black filmmakers. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, Hollywood is, is predominantly made up of a single demographic. Yeah. You know, it, it, and, and, and it's not anyone's particular fault. At least I would argue that it's not, it's, it's a thing that happens, Right. You know, most of the people that working that are working in it are very hardworking people, good people. Uh, But it's undoubtedly, uh, 
you know, Caucasian males of uh, upper middle class affluent mm-hmm. backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now we're starting to see the beginnings of a shift. You know, there's always been diverse uh, voices in right. cinema. Uh, I think cinema is a particularly difficult form because it requires so much money and there's mm-hmm. such a business component to it Yeah. Uh, that, you know, when you have kind of wealth begets wealth, uh, you're going to get into a feedback loop a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is. It's it's kind of heartbreaking to to think about what, um, you know, how many great actors of really all colors or, uh, uh, you know, people that just didn't fit into that that traditional um, demographic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as things are starting to shift a little bit to be more representative of, you know, the country and then the world as a whole. Uh, you know, what what other great performances could we have seen or could we have gotten? There? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I, I think, unfortunately, with Michael Clark Duncan, uh, you know, his size, his physicality, um, you know, is what people saw first. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, <laughs> despite him getting, uh, I think he got a, a, you know, supporting actor nomination for this film. He did. Um, yeah. so, you know, he, he has the chops. You watch this film and, mm-hmm. you know, there's no doubt he's emotionally affecting. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, because of just his physical presence and, and, you know, maybe he, you know, without talking to him, you know, that was the route he wanted to go. You know, maybe those films, the bigger action films are just more fun um, and and made more sense for him and his, you know, uh, you know, his family. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the pay is probably there. I mean, the the pay is probably there because they, they throw money there, but yeah, I mean, he, and he did get nominated for supporting actor here and rightfully so, because it's, it's a wonderful performance. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the, performance and you i know i'm fairly certain you don't either because it it is such a great piece of work and like you said he's got the chops for it he's got the chops for these more in-depth performances and it's like he he really was like he he pro- i probably still would have given it to Haley joel osmond person well actually I, no i just rewatched magnolia and probably tom cruise will have gotten my vote but mm. that was such a fantastic year for that category. There were so many great performances that year. And just in general, there were great performances that year. And he was definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what that character might have looked like, you know, in the script. Yeah. And how hollow that character may have been. I, you know, I don't know. You don't know what's going on in the actual lines, what's going on in the subtext of a script. But uh, you really get the sense that he, you know, the, the cliche is he brought it to life. But I do think in this situation, mm-hmm. he really breathed life into something that that may not necessarily have been there initially. Yeah. Um, well, before we before we wrap this up, uh, did you have anything more that you wanted to say or talk about? Yeah, you know, I kind of want to circle back because, you know, we spent the last uh, <laughs> half an hour maybe semi looking at some of the problem areas of the film. Um, you know, I do want to circle back, though, and say that all of those things noted, uh, this was still a very poignant film for me. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I, like I said, rewatched over the last two days, so it's still very fresh with me. Um but it is is a film that I really just enjoy living in and hanging out inside of and, you know, being with these characters. And I do appreciate, you know, the time 
and care and attention to detail uh, that they took to telling the story. You know, it's one of the films where I'd, I'd start off a scene with the intent of like, let me break down this scene. Let me try to analyze it as we go into the scene. Let me think about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, within a minute, I've completely forgotten that motivation <laughs> and I'm just wrapped in the story of it. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's a film that makes you kind of grateful to, uh, you know, for me, and, I, and I'm sure for you, cinema is such a large part of our lives. Uh, you know, it makes you grateful to be alive mm-hmm. and to say, gosh, man, if I was born 100 years earlier, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's such a young art form. Um, you know how lucky we are to have this. Yeah. Uh, and to have this story like this, uh, you know, to be able to have this type of conversation and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, look at things in our own life uh, mm. and, you know, reflect on those, uh, you know, through the power of, of what I consider to be a very beautiful story. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. Yeah. We as much as we talked about the problem areas with this film, it is it it is just a beautiful story. It is a wonderful story. Like like you said, it's a fable, and that's basically the best way to put to look at this movie. And it's it's told with real humanity by mm-hmm. Darabont as a screenwriter and director. It's performed exceptionally well by every actor involved with this movie, uh, from Tom Hanks to Michael Clark Duncan to Michael Jeter to Sam Rockwell to uh, David Morris, Harry Dean Stanton, Barry Pepper, Bonnie Hunt, Patricia Clarkson, James Cromwell. And it's it's just it it is a perform is a movie that even if I I don't know that I would necessarily I don't know that I would necessarily consider it a great movie, but at the same time I do think it's it's a great experience if you just mm-hmm. sort of give yourself over to it. And I mean that's a credit. That's, that's really the ultimate credit to the filmmakers, is that they're capable of telling this story in a way that it it does suck us in. Like this isn't this is an over three minute movie, three hour movie, and it does not feel like it at all. You don't really feel even the scenes like the scenes that we uh, were talking about that maybe could probably be, you know taken away or trimmed down or something like that it still moves as confidently and as briskly as a two-hour movie would or an hour and a half movie would and that that's a tremendous credit to Darabont and everybody involved with this film yeah yeah you know I I think it's um gosh you know it's so hard uh and there's so few great films yeah that you know we really latch onto that um and we forget to be you know thankful for like you know it's it's a good film it's just very good and solid and and that should not be a uh you know a negative on it (laughs) you know making a good solid entertaining film uh that touches people uh you know with how difficult it is to make a film with how difficult it is to make a film with so much humanity uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be knocked because it's not a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't particularly achieve greatness and maybe somebody else could argue against us and tell, you know, us all the reasons why we're wrong. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm happy to live with it as, you know, a really good film that, yeah. that I'm glad it was in my life. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, 
it's it's one of those things where it's like first and foremost, I mean, you know, and it sort of ties into a discussion going on as far as what is cinema, what isn't cinema, what involve what sort of defines cinema. I mean, this this is this is a movie that sort of straddles that those definitions because to a certain extent it is cinema. It is is about the craft of filmmaking, the the storytelling mm-hmm. involved with filmmaking, but it's also entertainment and it's really entertaining and really engaging as entertainment. And I think that's one of the things that uh and that's one of the reasons it continues to connect with people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with all of that. And, you know, I hope, uh, you know, when I take a look at your top 10 films of 1999, that The Phantom Menace is uh, at top of that list as number one. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and even as somebody who would defend a lot of it in 1999, I definitely can say, uh, yeah, I, I. What I will say I, though I, with that movie, George Lucas made the film he wanted to make. He he did. He did. Yeah. Whether it's a particularly good film <laughs> is a is a discussion for a different podcast, which you can also hear in this series. Um, <laughs> but uh, Nicholas, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on, uh, and uh, yeah, letting me partake in this conversation with you, man. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Love talking to you about stuff like this. I'd like to thank Nick for joining me to discuss The Green Mile. Um, it's it's one of those movies where I think, to a certain extent, some of some of the movies, even the Oscar nominees, tend to get forgotten when it comes to 1999 because you have movies like Magnolia and Fight Club and American Beauty that do- it dominated the conversation for so much. But it's it's one of those movies that I really it, it's it's a pleasure to rewatch. I mean, we. We discussed some of the uh, problem areas with the movie, but it's still a wonderful entertainment. As we conclude the class of 1999 series, this is going to get a bit bonkers, uh, continue to get a bit bonkers, but we've got a lot of great filmmakers coming up. David Lynch, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, Chris Smith, James Mangold. It's it's going to be a lot of great uh, filmmakers to talk about. Um, hit us up at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema for more. And uh, that's it for the Sonic Cinema podcast for this episode. This is Brian Scuttle. And uh, thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Mm-hmm.